Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This week, why New Zealand loves making documentaries like Scott Dixon, Born Racer. Not a great stop for Scott Dixon. Unless he's going really fast, he doesn't feel alive. Bohemian Rhapsody succeeds, like Queen, by giving the audience what they want. Freddie, could you tell us about the rumours concerning your sexuality? Queen, how long can that last? You don't make decisions for the band. And top cinematographer Simon Raby regrets he can't operate his camera on his current film. On mortal engines, I had, there was no way I could operate as well as light. I had, like, three comms. I had a set of comms on my head, and I had two, one in each hand, talking to three different departments constantly by remote. So um, it was too fast for me to be able to operate. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. The movies have an ambivalent attitude to reality, particularly these days when truth seems such a slippery quality. On the one hand, cinema audiences are fascinated by stories based on real life, but generally they're less keen on straight documentaries, dismissing them as a bit worthy. However, two recent New Zealand documentaries have gone out of their way to avoid accusations of preaching. Pietra Brett Kelly's Yellow is Forbidden is set in the self-indulgent fashion industry, following Chinese frock queen Guo Pei as she attempts to crash French haute couture. And on the other side of the street, there's Bryn Evans's Born Racer, the Scott Dixon story. Not a great stop for Scott Dixon. Unless he's going really fast, he doesn't feel alive. I'd like everybody to focus on one thing and one thing only, winning this race. Petrol heads can marvel at the Kiwi racer as he conquers the American circuit at speeds that are not so much death-defying as death-encouraging. And earlier this year, we saw The Heart Dancers, a gloriously shot coverage behind the scenes of the ballet version of Jane Campion's movie, The Piano. Later in the show, we'll talk to the award-winning cinematographer of The Heart Dancers, Simon Raby, at the end of a very busy year. Simon's also the cinematographer for the latest wetter blockbuster, Mortal Engines. What is that? That is London. 60 minutes is all it took to bring humanity to the very brink of extinction. Documentaries are not only cheaper to produce than dramas, you don't have to work to make them believable. This stuff happened. Deal with it. Generally, that's not what happens in a fictional film based on real life. (laughs) A lot of men are scared we won't go back into our boxes when this is over. The work's good. Very good. Between us, we'll have them weeping in the aisles. 
If the facts don't fit the producer's idea of a story, they get, shall we say, tweaked. Real people are combined to make them movie characters. Events are conflated into movie moments. The leads are given lines that nobody says, at least not without expensive scriptwriters. And nowhere is this more the case than in showbiz biopics. We want to do something different. It's my money. I say, what goes? We can't simply repeat ourselves. No. We can do better. Biopics of famous musicians and entertainers also stumble at the description inimitable. A documentary can investigate why the unlikely figure of an upper-middle-class kid from Zanzibar became one of the biggest pop stars on earth. A fiction version can only imitate how he behaved when he got there. Well, that's the challenge of the film Bohemian Rhapsody. Not everyone is a star, Freddie. What are you afraid of? You can't get anywhere pretending to be someone you're not. You regret it. No one will play queen. Long before Bohemian Rhapsody came out, it was clear it was weighted down by expectations. Should singer Freddie Mercury be portrayed as a victim of anti-gay prejudice in the repressed 70s? Or was he up against old-fashioned racism? Freddie, could you tell us about the rumours concerning your sexuality? Queen, how long can that last? You don't make decisions for the band. Your life is going to be very difficult. Meanwhile, there was an equal amount of pressure from the many millions of Queen fans and possibly, most critically, the surviving members of the band. Guitarist Brian May and drummer Roger Taylor have kept a very firm grip on the band's legacy over the years and they're listed as producers of the film. So now what? Uh, this is when the operatic section comes in. Oh, the operatic section, yeah. So it's safe to say the story told in Bohemian Rhapsody is true enough rather than obsessively so. It opens with Freddie, played by American actor Rami Malek, with unconvincing dentures, meeting Brian and Rog at a pub. I enjoyed the show. I also write songs. Our lead singer just quit. Then you'll need someone new. Actually, I was pleasantly surprised that the writers, Kiwi Anthony McCartan and Brit Peter Morgan, resisted the temptation to do an Oliver Stone version of the Queen's story. One tortured genius, three boring losers, that sort of thing. Instead, they concede that all four members, including bass player John Deacon, contributed hits to the band. What's that? Higher. Can you go a bit higher? If I go any higher, only dogs will hear me. Try. Higher. The rest of the band is remarkably well cast, occasionally better than Rami as Fred because they don't have to do it past ridiculous false teeth. But they are often required to say stuff like this. Can you see what you could be? No-one will play us on the radio. We need to get experimental. Nobody in the history of pop music has ever said the line, we're not being played on the radio, we'd better get more experimental. Also fudged over was the fact that in the 70s you didn't necessarily have to be played on the radio, let alone the dreaded top of the pops, to make it. What makes Queen any different from all of the other wannabe rock stars I meet? Tell you what it is, Mr. Reed. Yeah! 
But we're four misfits who don't belong together. They're playing for other misfits. But Queen weren't quite the doomy outsider band being trumpeted here, certainly not compared with the likes of Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin. Instead, they were pop triumphant. Queen, in many ways, were British pop at its most ridiculously camp and royal. So turning them into rock cult figures with shadowy secret lives is perhaps a bit of a stretch, even if it does make a more appealing movie story. But the truth, a phenomenally successful group with an unbroken string of hits and an endearingly flamboyant frontman, cruelly cut down by disease, was seen as somehow not enough. You need to slow down, Fred. I just need a bit of time. What if I don't have time? The film Bohemian Rhapsody does its best, building up Freddie's relationship with his first girlfriend, Mary, and a bit of drama with his straight-laced family. He also tries to make the success of their Rococo magnum opus a bit less likely. It goes on forever, six bloody minutes. I pity your wife if you think six minutes is forever. But Bohemian Rhapsody was hardly the first lengthy single to make it into the charts. In fact, it owed its place in the history books to its genuinely groundbreaking video, which kick-started the MTV era. There's also an attempt to suggest that Freddie was bullied into a life of excess when he decided to come out. Mark these words. No one will play a queen. Fortune favours the bold. Freddie, concerning your private life. What more do you need to know? I make music. This is pretty unconvincing. Back in the pre-AIDS 70s, wild parties were pretty much de rigueur. It's just that Queen did them better than most. Bohemian Rhapsody is clearly aimed at casual visitors to the story of Queen. And if the story is at the expense of the facts or the music, well, that's the usual fate of a rock biopic. You're the outcast right at the back of the room. We're pretty sure they don't belong either. We belong to them. If you want to see some pretty accurate impersonations of Queen, the covers band version, if you like, well, here it is, and it seems to be doing surprisingly well for itself. If you care what actually happened, you might have to piece it together yourself from the wide range of old Queen footage available on YouTube. I know. Too much trouble. I agree. Love. Tragedy. Joy. Something that people will feel belongs to them. Recently, a gold award was given by the New Zealand Cinematographer Association to one of our leading camera wizards, Simon Raby. He received it for the documentary film The Heart Dances, The Journey of the Piano, the Ballet. But shortly, the rest of the world will see Simon Raby's work in the new wetter blockbuster, Mortal Engines. It's a long way from his early beginnings as a budding pop star in the early 80s. Tag along. 
That's Simon Raby, pop star. But music's loss has been film's gain. Simon's track record is astonishingly various. Documentaries, independent films, genre pictures like the notorious Deathgasm, and most of all his work with the Peter Jackson machine, from Lord of the Rings to Mortal Engines. Simon Raby, welcome to the programme. Thanks very much, Simon. So, were you always going to be a filmmaker? Um, I think so. When I was very young, I quite liked the idea of being a doctor, but... Being inherently lazy, I discovered how many years were involved in the training and I sort of had second thoughts about it. But from about the age of 12, I'd, I'd, I'd been interested in cameras and Dad let me use his uh, standard 8 movie camera when I was a kid. And I, I was a big Ray Harry Horseman fan in those days, so I started by making stop-motion animation epics on the, on the dining room table. But then, having taken a little sort of sidetrack into uh, pop stardom and then deciding against that, you, uh, you became as a freelance cinematographer and sound guy. You, you, you worked in both areas. Well, you know, it was actually the music video itself that got me into the industry proper. I'd been working at a place called Vidcom in their film lab. It was my first job in sort of getting towards the industry, if you like. And uh, while I was in the film lab, I started dabbling with playing music, and I had a record label called Ferret Records, and recorded the song, and um, and the people at Vidcom said, oh, we really like the song. If you want to make a music video, we'll give you the studio and the crew on the weekend, and you write it and produce it, and we'll help you make it. So we went ahead and did that. You know, it had got screened on radio pictures, and I sold all my records, and not long after that, the film lab was sold to Atlab in Australia, mm. and um, all the team there were offered either different positions in Atlab, and they offered me a, a trainee position at Vidcom in their production side. So I started a six-year sort of process where I did just about everything at Vidcom. I did sound post-production, sound production, gaffer assist, grip assist, camera assist, and then ended up directing corporates and commercials with them. And early on you met Nicky Caro, I believe, um, who was one of the, the first people to really work with you. Yeah, well, I got a call out of the blue from her. It was about a year after I went freelance, because after Vidcom, I left in 87 to go to the Soviet Union for six months to do sound for a documentary shoot in the Soviet Union. And then when I came back from that, I set up as a freelancer, and I had a sound kit from that documentary shoot, so I was, that was, sound was my meat and potatoes, and I wasn't really known at all as a, as a cinematographer. And then one day I got a call out of the blue from Nikki Cara, who she was doing her master's degree at Elim, and she said, you know, are you Simon Raby? You know, I'm doing this short film for my master's. Would you be interested in shooting it? And I went, well, I would love to, but I'm not quite sure why you're ringing me because no one knows me and you've got this long list of people that you could choose from. Why are you choosing me? And she said, well, you did that song Tag Along, didn't you, back in... Oh, and, wow. And I said, yes. She said, well, when I was at high school, we loved that song and we used to, <laughs> we used to play it all the time. She said, that's why I want you to do my first short film. I, I didn't tell her at the time I'd never shot any 16 mil. And the style she wanted to do was like German expressionist, kind of black and white, very extreme contrast. And so we did this process where we forced the, the negative, where you run it for longer in the bath and it makes it more contrasty, more grainy and more sensitive to light. But all the rushes in those days were processed at the National Film Unit in Wellington and we were shooting up in Auckland. So it would take a week before we got any of our footage back. So I kind of shot the film totally blind. I'd done a very quick sort of 20-foot test to see if the pushing of the neck was going to work. And then we just went into it, and I didn't see any of the footage until the film was finished. I know that you have a, uh, an interest in historic film styles, you know, the, the various looks that you associate with certain decades and things. I know that uh, particularly you had an interest in 70s-style camera work. I mean, is that a, th a thing that, uh, that all cinematographers have, an interest in the, the different types of film stock there are available? I think everyone comes from a different perspective. I mean, I grew up in the 70s, so I obviously have a, a fondness for films from the 70s because mm. that was quite formative for me. Often it's kind of collaboration with the director because I'm often responding to what the director's sort of feelings towards the project are. When I did Heaven with Scott Reynolds, he was quite specific about a certain 70s film look. 
and we went out of our way to find a stock from that period. We actually found the last of its stock being produced in the world and used that for some of our exterior material for heaven because we wanted that kind of look. One question that we never ask whenever we talk to cinematographers is, what is the job of a cinematographer? I mean, a lot of people get very confused about what does a director do, what does a cinematographer do? What do you see as the job of a cinematographer, Simon? The job of a cinematographer is to translate the essence of a story and the emotions around the story into a look. So as a cinematographer, I'm in charge of the composition, the lighting, and the movement of the camera. So there's three departments that I run. I run the camera department, which handle all the cameras and the lenses and the sorts of gear we're going to use, the filters and stuff, sorts of trap tripods we're using. The grips are in charge of moving the camera, whether it's a crane or a steady cam or a dolly. Uh, anything that requires heavy plant building is kind of grip territory. And the lighting department obviously is in charge of what lights we're using, what colours they are, how soft they are, how hard they are, how we mount them, where we get them, how we get them up there. So, in fact, I mean, very rarely do you actually touch the camera itself, do you? I, I like to operate. It's, mm. I mean, one of my, I think most cinematographers would agree that operating is one of the favourite parts of the job. But some jobs are just too big to do that. And on mortal engines, I, there's no way I could operate as well as light. I had like three comms. I had a set of comms on my head and I had two, one in each hand, talking to three different departments constantly by remote. So um, it was too fast for me to be able to operate. I'll break the story down into beats, like how many beats in this scene need to be told? And I'm going, can this beat be told with this shot or does it need its own special thing? I mean, that's quite aside from the style of the shoot. But it's like, for me, cinematography is story. It's all about story. And in fact, maybe in the 21st century, cinematography is kind of the dominant way we tell story these days. The one time that people tend to notice the work of a cinematographer is that very flash, one-shot thing. I mean, I remember there was a, uh, an Argentinian film called The Story in Their Eyes, which st- starts hovering above uh, a football match and ends up in a close-up of the, the guy being attacked by a dog. And the whole thing takes 10 minutes in wow. which it goes absolutely all over the place. I mean, clearly trickery was involved in this <laughs> thing here. I don't think that actually happened. But, I mean, that is a... Um, th- there is a tendency to, to want to do that kind of show-off camera work, isn't there? I mean, I've, I've seen films that are in, um, nominally entirely made out of one shot. Mm. I think um, show-off is the right sort of phrase there. I mean, I, my, my approach to that is how does this serve the story? Like, the, I'm all for the one shot provided it's telling enough story within it one shot. I'm not very interested in, in style for its own sake. How did you get involved with Peter Jackson? Because you've been involved with his major works ever since, well, going right back to Lord of the Rings, really, haven't you? I guess so, not really. I did Lord of the Rings and then there was quite a long break and then I, um, he asked me back to do the second unit directing on District 9 and then he asked me back to do Mortal Engines. So there's been, there's been break periods. But, I mean, I think Peter probably asked me to do Lord of the Rings because of the work I'd done on Scott's early films like Heaven and The Ugly. Now, you were involved in uh, Second Unit, and Second Unit is a very specific area, isn't it? It's the, uh, it's the part of the film that doesn't feature the lead actors. Is, is that a fair description of that job? It's a sometimes description of that job. It really depends on the film. A lot of the time, Second Unit is to do with yeah, the things that don't involve main drama action. So there might be like explosions or things blowing up or people fighting. It can be close-up of objects. So it can be mundane stuff. But I found on Lord of the Rings because it was such a busy shoot and we were trying Mm. to split the fellowship and the actors within the fellowship so much between several units, we often found ourselves doing drama as well. And my director on uh, Lord of the Rings was Jeff Murphy, so he was well-schooled in in working working drama as well. 
he drives drives it along, doesn't he, Jeff? I mean, he was famous for just getting on with it. He does like to get on with it for sure, and he's he's, he's a big Western fan, Jeff. He likes to shoot from the hip a lot, and so you look at Lord of the Rings, and anything that you see him from the waist is sort of usually Jeff shot. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favourite shot in Lord of the Rings? I know I'm asking you to kind of select something out Goodness. of nine hours. It was a lot of a lot of footage. <laughs> the first thing I shot in Lord of the Rings was the fight in the Tomb of Barnum with the Cave Trolls, and so I have fond memories of that scene because it was you know. Peter Kay said, I wanted to look like a war documentary, just make it look like a war doco. Oh, wow. And it was quite radical in those days. We were hand-holding stuff as well as steady camming, and that was quite a big deal for the VFX guys. That was a very enjoyable scene. It started off in a difficult way because we had originally anticipated that a lot of the orcs, the small orcs that would come through the doorway would bounce off the walls and things like that. They were like, like crickets or something. And so we had all these mini tramps set up for them to bounce in and off the walls. But after breaking ankles, um, we decided that <laughs> it was going to take too long. We are going to run out of stunties too fast. It must be difficult to shoot um, stuff like that because so much of it is holes that will be filled later. Um, it is. It's just consultation, really. I mean, and you've read the script and you've sort of... With Lord of the Rings, there was quite a substantial set of storyboards, like a pre-visualisation of the film, um, which Peter sort of would come to or leave as he felt fit. Like, I think he had been a bit tired of the storyboards by the time he started shooting, so he reinvented quite a few things. But, you know, it's about communication. Filmmaking is all about communication. So the storyboard, if you're doing second unit, you'll have a pretty strong list of things you're supposed to get that day. I know that uh, in addition to the stuff that you're doing here, I mean, you've actually stepped up. You're the cinematographer, aren't you, for Mortal Engines? I am, I am. That's very exciting. You know, I mean, what was that like? It was a big film. Like, there was a lot going on. Um, it was all on stages. There was just about nothing on location. So on the plus side, we didn't have to worry about mud and rain that much. But on the downside, you're always worrying about how... I don't know how the background actually looks in this scene. Or you're kind of guessing at what might be there in the background sometimes. Sometimes you know what's going on and sometimes you're kind of fudging a little bit because you're not quite sure how it's going to end up with the backgrounds. I mean, you're shooting a lot of daytime exterior stuff in a studio, so you have to really light your stages in a way that will simulate daylight really accurately. So, I mean, the trick with a show like that is actually Mortal Engines was quite a fast sort of tent pole. Uh, you know, for a big movie like that, it moved, quite, it moved along at a fair, fair pace. So one of my tricks was learning how to lighter stage with the lights that we'd hired in such a way that I could change them very quickly for different setups and for different scenes. So it didn't involve hours and hours of moving the lights around. I could just turn some things off and turn things and some things on. Some lights I'd have on trusses that were at 90 degrees and we could slide them up and down the stage. I was still working with floor lighting as well, but the majority of our base light was sort of in the roof. And yet the film that won you your uh, the gong from the Cinematography Association couldn't be more different in some respects from uh, from Mortal Engines. It's a, well, not small, but it is a documentary about a ballet production and, and, and involved, I imagine, quite a lot of fly-on-the-wall coverage. It was all fly-on-the-wall, actually, um, apart from a few interviews. The Heart Dancers happened immediately after I did the main block of shooting of Mortal Engines, and then the climax of the Heart Dancers, which was the first public performance of the ballet, took place the day before I started the pickups for the next set of Mortal Engines. So <laughs> there was a little bit of crossover confusion there as I tried to wrangle the dates between the, the two production companies. Well, it must be very hard to kind of get your head around it a little bit. I mean, I'm thinking big. No, no, I'm not thinking big. I'm thinking small now. <laughs> I'm always thinking big, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> Do you no. have a preference as far as, you know, great big blockbustery type thing or small catching the events, you know, on the fly like you would in a documentary? Uh, my preference is to mix it up, actually. I mean, big movies, you get to work with lots of resources and big teams of very creative, very interesting people. So there's a very good family that comes with a big movie. But on a smaller project like a doco, like The Heart Dances, you know, which is only like three or four of us at, at a given time, you're getting into places that you would not normally 
be able to allowed to go. So the, the documentary is a free pass into another world that you don't live in, and I really love seeing different parts of the world that I don't normally live in. That's ace cinematographer Simon Raby, Gold Award winner for his work on the documentary The Heart Dancers and DOP for the upcoming blockbuster Mortal Engines, which brings this show to a close. I'm Simon Morris and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.